Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-game. My guest today on the A-Game Podcast is Garrett Gunderson. Garrett Gunderson is a Wall Street Journal and New York Times best-selling author, not Amazon, New York Times, big difference there. He's written some books like What Would the Rockefellers Do, uh, The New Rules to Get Rich, as well as Killing Sacred Cows. Uh, he is the founder of many companies. He is uh, Wealth Factory is your website, right? Yep, wealthfactory.com. Wellfactory.com, awesome. I had the pleasure of seeing him speak in Park City, Utah, not that long ago, and I thought some of the things he was saying were so high level and impressive that I asked him right away if he would do me a favor and get on the podcast. Uh, but more importantly for me, being someone that loses, uh, loses focus pretty easily, I was very entertained by everything you said. I think hands down you were top two financial guys I have ever heard actually make me laugh, pique my interest, and, and teach me a whole bunch of stuff. So um, without further ado, Garrett Gunderson, thank you very much for giving us some of your time. Um, give yeah. yourself a brief introduction. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a small coal mining town two hours southeast of uh, Park City, where, you're, where you heard me speak. So, um, and I mean, my, my dad being a coal miner, my grandfather's, my grand, great-grandfather, all coal miners. I've never stepped foot in a coal mine. So for me, this life's going to be about something different, like hard work with the wrong philosophy still equals limited results, you know? And so I, from a young age, wanted to make a lot of money, number one, because I thought having a lot of money meant I was successful and that I would get, you know, a degree of uh, respect. And then the second thing is I want to get the hell out of that town. So that was my early motivating factors. And at 15, I started a business detailing cars. And then won the, you know, won young entrepreneur competitions for the next couple of years, including the state uh, where I won 5,000 bucks, wanted to invest it, figured out I didn't know anything about investing, made a mistake with my first investment and decided maybe it'd be better to understand and study and ask more questions rather than just allocate these dollars. And in doing that, I got offered an internship, which really meant, hey, bring your friends and family so we can peddle them a bunch of mutual funds and life insurance. And uh, it sounded cool, told people I was a financial advisor, but I was a glorified um, salesman at the time and uh, did really well in 98, 99, because everybody did. And then in 2000, when the stock market went down, my real career began because I confronted everyone, told them I know what the hell I was doing. They should get out their money out of the market and figure out if someone else could help them out better or wait for me to figure out something. And I went on a 26 month journey flying somewhere every single month interviewing the best minds, attending the best types of events I could get into. Even ones I wasn't qualified to enter, I still got in because I was resourceful as hell. And uh, just started to uncover, um, you know, expertise in the world of efficiency. So we're going to help people plug the leaks, keep more of what they make. And I really started to get into a deep philosophical journey to figure out what, why is it that so many people struggle with money? Why is it that people have the wrong, you know, context around it? Why do why do so many people make major mistakes? Why do so many people uh, wrap up their identity in it? And uh, 
through that nerdiness and, and that fascination, I've been able to come up with some pretty simple, practical and useful solutions. I think that's awesome, man. I love what you said there too. One of the things about doing this podcast is just talking to people that no matter what they do, they find ways to just do stuff different and they stick with it and they just don't accept stuff. And one of the things that stuck out to me, like you just said, was you started investing, it didn't go that well, and you decided, hey, I better actually learn about what the hell I'm doing. And I feel like a lot of people, I shouldn't say most people at this point, but a lot of people, they start investing in something because they think it's, uh, they see somebody else do it, they watch the lifestyle they have, and they go, I want to do that too. They do minimal due diligence into doing it. They try and, like I've seen you say a bunch of times, I read a bunch of your books now, hire somebody, cross their fingers, and just hope it's going to make money. And then when it doesn't, they go, oh, it's a bunch of crap, or it's a scam, or that doesn't work anyway, and they just quit instead of going back and figuring out, you know, why didn't that really work? Because it obviously worked for some people. Why didn't it work for me? And instead of just saying that doesn't work, they go, let me find a better way to do it next time. And, you know, I, I attribute everything like I do to jiu-jitsu. And in jiu-jitsu, we have something on the wall that says a black belt is just a white belt who didn't quit. And I always tell people my version of a black belt isn't somebody who can beat everybody up. It just means that that guy has taken every beating possible and gone back the next day and said, I'm just not going to get it beat up like that again. And just not fall into those traps. So you going around every single week for however many weeks it was, what kind of stuff do you see for the people that you talk to? And have you always been like that? Do you just question things and try and find a way to make it happen? Just don't accept what other people are doing. Has that always been part of who you were? I don't know that that was really, I don't think it was really who I always was. I think the pain of family and friends losing money in 2000 was like, oh, I want to be of high integrity and I want to have a great reputation and I want to do well for the people that I care about and all of a sudden I'm confronted with I don't know anything. Like I went from thinking I was a financial Einstein, little boy wonder, to like I don't know anything. I had nothing to do with the returns I got. I simply showed them brochures, told them stories, sounded smart and handed their money over to someone I'd never met. And as soon as I saw through that, I was like, wait, like, okay, there's gotta be a better way. There's gotta be something different, but I really didn't have any clue what it was. And so then I became infinitely curious to the point where I was labeled a fanatic by some of the firms I was doing business with because I would go into meetings and question attorneys that were talking about estate planning and how to avoid estate tax. And they would argue with me because I'm like, well, what if maybe avoiding tax in this situation ends up costing you more because you lose overall value and return? Like, you know, you're, you're like, you want someone to raise tax? I'm like, well, it means they made more money. Who cares if they pay more tax, you know? And like, so I just became this nuisance and that, you know, I'm in the, I'm in my early twenties and it wasn't because I was trying to be a dick. It wasn't that I was arrogant. It was just that I was curious because I didn't want to end up telling people, oh, sorry, uh, you just lost your life savings because I don't know a damn thing, you know? And unfortunately I made a lot of mistakes early on. Like, I went from, oh, the stock market's great to the stock market sucks. Real estate's great to real estate sucks. I was just chasing returns. And when you don't have a, a philosophy or the principle, then you chase returns without a premise, then profit's always going to be elusive. It's always going to be like the next greatest thing. And if there were a magic product, we'd all own it. There's no magic product, just like there's no magic pill. If you want to get fit, there's personal responsibility. You want to stay healthy you've got to understand what you're putting into your body and what motion that you're taking and getting some sleep. 
No one can do that for you. And somehow we've been lied to thinking someone's going to do it for us in finance. There's some magic advisor that's going to make people so much money. And maybe guys like Ray Dalio have done that, but they've done it for a very select few ridiculously wealthy people and everybody else misses out on the opportunity. And as I started to see what the ultra wealthy were doing, they weren't chasing returns. They were building wealth in their business. They were saving money on tax to get returned. They weren't paying a bunch of interest for things that other people were. They were making sure that they had, you know, they were getting to design things from scratch and they weren't paying some middleman on most of it. So I just saw this completely different world and I got pissed off. I was like, oh, this is fascinating, but I'm frustrated because I don't have access to it. None of my clients would have access to it. And I see why poor people stay poor. I see why broke people stay broke. I see why people just keep hustling and grinding. And that's what that activity doesn't lead to more profitability for most of them. It just leads to a crappy life that they think that one day they'll be able to retire from. You feel like you have to retire from your life. You're living the wrong life. It's time to make different decisions. Now 30 years isn't going to save you. I love that, man. I think that that's awesome. And leading into that, there, there's a hundred different directions. I have all these notes of like the different things I wanted to talk to you about. I think your books are awesome. And by the way, I get so bored listening to Audible and everybody always tells me listen to Audible. Yours are probably the best ones I've listened to because you actually do them. And it was just like you were right there in Park City. So I've been able to listen to those straight through. Anybody who wants to listen to like a good financial book with good information that actually... It's just so different. You have such conviction with the stuff you say, and it's very entertaining. Your audible books are, are outstanding, man. So great job on that. Um, but one of the things you said on that that I think is awesome is you do have some notes on there about why do people stay broke? Why don't people get rich with the amount of books and the internet and all the information out there and seminars everywhere and free content and, and social media things? What are you seeing? Like, why, why are so many people still in such a bad position with more information out there than ever? Um, I mean, more information actually makes it just more confusing. And a confused mind is not like, is not a powerful mind, right? So, so the bottom line here is if, if it was just about knowing the right information and that's all that was to it, like it wouldn't be that hard, but it's really comes down to having the right team and that finances have a lot of moving pieces. So I just... I think too many people think that they can just buy a stock and that's going to get them there. Right. Like, or if they just, they, they, they're pissed that they missed out on the time when cryptocurrency was cheap. And so all of it just becomes this very tactical, like, you know, timing based thing that, yeah, some people make it, but the majority don't. And therefore they're just, they get frustrated in the greed that come kicks in or the fear that kicks in basically misleads them over and over again. So we're in a time where everyone's a so-called expert, but there's not that many fucking experts. There's a lot of people that are just talking and not saying much, you know? And so, and there's just a lot of people that want the shortcut. They want the easy thing. We're in a, we're in a world where everything's hack this and hack that. And I'm like, I get it. We want to get, we want to get something to collapse the amount of time it would take to do something. But sometimes when we're trying to hack things, we actually just cut out the things that matter the most, right? And I say that carefully because, I mean, I think that there's some value in the notion of hack. Like uh, my buddy, you know, Dave Asprey in the world of health has some pretty cool strategies in that. But man, if you don't increase your, invest, your, your investor intellect, your financial IQ, or what I would call discover your investor DNA, it's going to be a tough ride. And too many people speculate. 
And look, I just haven't found the people out there that are making money on a product saying this product sucks, you shouldn't do it. They're out there saying all the reasons everyone should do it. And they, they paint this picture like it's gonna be this magic formula and it's all gonna be an amazing ride. But if someone can't tell you what the downside is, then you need to run quickly because there's always downsides, there's always issues. And look, too many people are coming from this lens that high risk equals high return. So they're willing to take risk in hopes of a high return. And guess what? The people making money are having other people take risk while they can make a return on them. Or people believe it takes money to make money, which is a notion that has them feel debilitated and deflated and so they do nothing. Well, guess what? The people that tell you it takes money to make money it doesn't take their money. It takes your money for them to make money, right? Like it's, it's so crazy to watch and everybody's out there accumulating cash. They're setting money aside. They're not for the long haul. They're dollar cost averaging and they're waiting for 30 years. Well, everyone else that's getting wealthy is building cash flow. They're focused on efficiency. They're investing in a business. They're not investing in like something that they know nothing about. They're not diversifying in a portfolio they have no control over. That's where they store their money, not where they grow their money. So I think that, you know, it takes a little bit of a, it takes a little bit of time to see through a lot of that because they're getting reiterated every time they turn on the news or every time they listen to a company. I think that that's outstanding. And the thing you just said there about people getting overwhelmed, I a hundred percent agree with that, but you going out and seeing all those different people on that short amount of time, it probably became a lot easier to sniff out the bullshit for the people that didn't know what they were talking about. And I'm sure at this point, I can tell you probably just have no patience for it. You're really quick to call things out. You can tell right away who knows what they're talking about, who doesn't. So for people starting out, I think that that's great advice is people only giving you the upside and the, you know, the, the sunshine and rainbows of the investments without giving you the bad side. You know, I, I see a lot of people now on the real estate side of it when they come in, some of the guys that, We'll start it off talking about all the money they make and other guys come in, they go, all right, who's been making money? Now, who's been making money since before the crash versus after? It's like, okay, so you don't really know how to adapt when the market changes. It's like you said, you were making money when it was easy to make money, but do you really have a backup plan for when you don't? So I definitely think that that's big advice too. And I agree with getting overwhelmed. What's some, some factors you can look at now for somebody? I mean, for me, again, one of the first things I thought was I just couldn't wait for you when I heard you speak to give us the place that we can go send our stuff to you and have you look over, you know, like the back, back three years of tax and the financial. Cause immediately after hearing so many people talk, I was like, this guy knows his shit. He knows what he's talking about. He's not wasting anybody's time. How long did it take you to get to that point? And what kind of stuff do you see for somebody who's starting out new? Um, what are some red flags or some things that you would give for somebody just trying to sniff out somebody that's worth their time or not to listen to their advice? Well, like, I think I really started to discover most of this stuff in the year 2000. Yeah, I started in June of 1998, and that's when I began my financial services career as a teenager, actually, I was 19 at the time, still going to college. And all I was learning was how to build rapport and how to sell. And all I was looking at is what the past performance of what investments were, extrapolating that on the future, and then telling people you couldn't count on that because that's what you have to legally say, but at the same time, believing it was going to continue to do that because I didn't really know. It was the 90s, man. The economy felt strong, but I wasn't considering that it was built upon borrowing and, um, you know, it was, it was built upon a consumption basis. And, you know, yeah, we were having this kind of tech boom, but a lot of that was fake. A lot of that was completely fake. People are shipping nothing and people are buying into something that didn't actually deliver a single cent of profit ever, but it was just exciting. And so excitement can take us a certain amount of, you know, distance. And, Ultimately, it's going to lose steam, and when it does, it kind of crashes down. So 
what happened for me is I walk in at age 22 and I see a family office and a family office is like the Rockefellers invented this type of concept where they're a family and they have these financial people that only work for the Rockefeller family. So if you're worth 300 million bucks, you could probably afford to have a family office that's just for you and your family. If you're not worth that, well, then this is where we see problems. We've got an attorney that doesn't communicate with the accountant. We've got an investment advisor that doesn't communicate with the insurance person. We've got a mutual fund salesman that doesn't like the real estate that you're doing. And like all this stuff is just people with conflicting opinions pulling that individual in different directions and that individual thinking they have a financial plan when they don't have a financial plan, they have a piece of paper where there was a transaction involved in there that someone got paid, but a lot of areas where it's been neglected, right? They haven't gotten a state plan. They haven't considered asset protection. They haven't built up the liquidity because no one's getting paid on those things. So what I find is there's four eyes. And then one other thing you can do that makes a huge difference. The first eye is get money back from the IRS. Most people are tipping the, gov the government, you know? Look, we're already paying sales tax, excise tax. We're already paying property tax. Now add to that income tax. Why overpay that simply because you don't have the right framework or the right accounting team? The second I is investments. There's a lot of hidden fees. There's a lot of commissions. There's a lot of non-performing type things simply because of administration that if you can eliminate, you're gonna get further with the same dollars. And then the other piece of that is protecting the downside so that when the market goes down, you don't participate on the entire downside. The third I is, in, is interest. There's a lot of people that haven't structured their loans properly, haven't renegotiated their interest rates. They have underperforming assets that could pay off higher interest rate loans that would improve their cash flow and give them an immediate return. And the fourth I is insurance. There's a lot of duplicate coverages and improper structure that simply you could transfer risk more efficiently or at least not pay the insurance company money that's not getting you much benefit. So those four I's of the IRS, investments, interest, and insurance, and then we take this fifth component, which is build liquidity. If you have six months of your savings set aside to handle your personal expenses, you've got a peace of mind fund. You don't have some financial issue, some cash flow crunch, some health issue, some family trauma, destroy your entire financial life because you've got something that gives you staying power. It's neglected because there's not commission paid on that. So we don't see people making sure to get that done. We see them skipping those steps to feel like they need to go invest. And that investment a lot of times is not investing, it's gambling. If you don't know how you're gonna get that return, when you're gonna get that return, what the downside risks are, what the fees associated with it are, the, the different things that could prevent you from getting where you wanna go, you're not investing, you're gambling. And far too many people in that gambling are simply giving their money away with lottery syndrome, and all of a sudden when the market goes down, so does their attitude, so does their mindset. And then like you said, they blame someone else for it because they're just frustrated rather than becoming a better investor. So you build liquidity, you get more efficient, and that's the beginning. Why go save an extra dollar? Why cut something out of your life? Why go budget even further if you're simply losing big dollars to big institutions that you can get back for you? So why, rather than coupon clip, rather than cut out things that you enjoy in life, let's get the big, big dollars first. That's outstanding advice, man. I love that. Now, one of the things you said that I thought was interesting too is you you say a lot like nobody shrinks their way to wealth. And that's one of the things you just touched on at the end was if you're not living the life that you want to live, you're, you're, you're doing it all wrong. So I do know listening to uh, Killing Sacred Cows, there's a lot of that of all the things that people think are the safe things to do. Oh, I got to cut my costs. I got to cut my expenses. I'm not going to do the things I love. And that's how 
I'm going to get ahead. That's how I'm going to get rich. And it's so the opposite of everything else that's on there. I love a lot of those principles there, but it's so nuts that that I don't know anybody who's ever gotten ahead or been happy that they did that. You know, it's, it's the craziest thing, but that's what everybody's taught. And just some of the basics you have in those books for little things you can do a little bit differently to start to chip away and get ahead and, and do those things. I, I just think are awesome. What, what's some advice that you can give to somebody, especially I see it a lot with people that don't have the support at home. So I'll go to a seminar or a class or I'll talk to people about investing and people call me all the time. Oh, I'm ready. I'm going to give you money. I'll throw in on a property or I want to invest with you. And then all of a sudden it's time to do it. Ah, oh, you know what? I, I wanted to do it my whole life, but my wife or my husband or my mom or somebody, they won't let me do it. They're scared. They said, don't spend money, like save for retirement. What do you say to people like that that want to live a better life and they're just too scared to do anything about it because they think saving their money and pinching their pennies is the safe thing to do and the way to get ahead? Well, look, there's four losing games, four losing games that come from a perspective of scarcity. Four games. The first one is the game of the miser. The miser is trained, taught, and educated that it's all about how you can pinch pennies till you get blisters on your fingers. It's about how can they look for the best deal? What can they do to save money? And they get obsessed with saving money. So when they spend, can they get a better deal here, right? Um, can they drive further to get cheaper gas? Could they buy in bulk so that the price per unit goes down? Like it becomes an obsession in their life. And you see this with people and it's kind of like the Ebenezer Scrooge mentality. So those type of people are actually extraordinarily selfish. I mean, it sounds like I'm, I'm an ass for saying it, but it's not that they're bad people. It's just that they're not thinking of others. They'll negotiate someone down to the point where they're not even profitable if it means it's a good deal. They're not thinking about value creation. They're not thinking about collaboration. They're not thinking about vision. They're thinking about scrimping, saving, and sacrificing. And as you said, no one shrinks their way to wealth. So miser if they're going to stay in that mindset, they're going to destroy wealth for them and for others because they'll judge anyone else that's looking to do anything else. Now, the second type of losing game is the game of the conservative. Now, I'm talking about a, a I'm not talking about like a political ideology or I'm talking about the person that all of their life is about how much they can sock away. Like I was a miser when I first got married. So when my father-in-law was like, hey, you can live in the basement and save on rent, I told my wife, she's like, I guess you don't give a shit about sex, huh? I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, so I'm like, all right, let me give you $400 a month budget for an apartment. And we found out there's a ghetto in Utah. I mean, that's what a miser does. It's all about saving, right? Like, and I, and I know misers that I really like. And guess what? Misers just aren't as fun. They can't, you know. So then the second persona, is that conservative and the conservative I became that after the miser, which was, I'm just going to try to put away as much money as possible into retirement plans and into savings so that I can have this amazing life one day, someday. Right? So it's like over 50% of my earnings are going into retirement plans at that time are going into savings accounts are going into that type of stuff. And so, that's the conservative. Now, that's a losing game because it's, it's always about one day, someday. It's always delayed gratification. There's never room for enjoyment. The third type of losing game is a striver. Now, strivers just going to work their ass off, out hustle, out work. Like, they have no room for anything in life other than I got to make more. I got to do more. I got to go further. And so what happens is, like, they're going to judge the, the miser like you're an idiot. Like, 
you're, you're saving a few pennies. I'm going to go out and earn more. You know, they judge a conservative like you're just saving money. I'm growing. But the problem is there's never room for enjoyment. There's never like they're never content. And ultimately, they're exhausting to be around. Now, the fourth type of losing game is the high roller. High roller loves to name drop. They like to take stuff from people. They like to act like there's a lot of uh, deal flow they've got going on and they're going to get them in on the ground floor, but they don't care about anything but taking someone's money. So those are four losing games. But the thing is, each one of those people have characteristics that if they played a different game are extraordinarily valuable. The game shifts when there's collaboration, when there's value creation, when there's expansion, when there's impact. So the miser becomes a mindful manager. The mindful manager in an organization finds that ways that organization's losing or leaking money, finds ways that they can get something for less dollars that give them the same benefit, find out where something's not being utilized and eliminate it so there's not waste. That conservative becomes a planner that says, hey, in this organization, we're going to face obstacles. We've got to figure out where we're headed to next. How are we going to get there? And they start to plan those things out, which a lot of people don't think about. The striver becomes a creator. The creator starts to invent they start to invigorate, they start to inspire others because of what they can achieve and they bring a lot of people along with them. And the high roller becomes a catalyst that connects people together, that starts to bring out, they're the mover and shaker, they're the ones that can find deals and say, we could do this and they bring the money together. So all it is, is when people are in scarcity and they say something like, you can't do this and they go, well, I listen to so-and-so, well, guess what? Scarcity is the greatest destroyer of wealth no matter luck, saving, discipline, rate of return, or anything will save you. And how many people miss opportunity because other people that were, you know, preachers, teachers, friends, and family talked them out of something because it felt risky to them or because they weren't able to do it or they didn't want to see that person get ahead and create more pressure on them or whatever it is, they become the people that shit on dreams. They're the, they become the people that destroy vision. And so I think it's important to know that that same person if they look at the world a different way, it becomes extraordinarily valuable versus detrimental. And it's really the, the catalyst of everything is value creation. Seeing things through the eyes of value versus just preservation. Seeing things through the eyes of expansion versus reduction, right? Production versus reduction, those kind of things. I think that's awesome, man. Exactly like you said, I, I think it's a choice. I think people sit there and, and some of them look at other people and they want to listen to people and take people down. And I like what you said about those are the people that shit on other people's dreams. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people that do things that other people think are crazy, but all their circles don't. Like guys that I hang out with all day, most of them are either fighters or real estate investors. But when you go tell other people like, oh, like your friend goes and fights people on TV, like that's nuts. Not nuts to him. Him and everybody who lives in his house does that. You know, oh, you, you guys go flip properties or buy multi-units. That sounds like a crazy thing to do. You should save your money. Not crazy to us. That's what you do is crazy to us because it's just not the norm. And right. one of my friends said, uh, he said it really well. He said when, I, when he was on The Ultimate Fighter, he had a bunch of people that wrote to him when he won. Like, oh, you suck. I hate you. I hope you die. Like all this crazy stuff. And then when he lost, he said the amount of support he got from the very same people was like four or five times the amount. And he said, what he realized there was people don't necessarily want to see you do bad, but they don't want to see you do better than them. And I thought that that was very key to what you just said about a lot of people that will say, don't do this, don't invest in this, because they're worried that you're going to do something. Then they're going to have to look at themselves and say, well, shit, if Garrett did it, that means that I should have done it too when I didn't. And now I have to face that I didn't have the self-discipline to make that happen. And that's a bitch to live with sometimes, man, you know? Yeah. Just 
No, no. So on that same on that same note, one of the things that I also um, I heard you say, and, I, and you said in a couple of the books that I come across a lot is there was an analogy we were talking about about people like you said, pinching pennies or not looking at the big picture of the value there. So for instance, pulling money from something like a retirement account to invest in something that's going to make them money immediately and long-term. And they'll look at it and they'll go, you know what? I don't want to pull it out to invest in that investment or buy that property or buy that rental. That's going to pay me every month for the next 15, 20 years. Cause I don't want to take a 10% penalty. And that 10% penalty is what they sit on instead of looking at the value, what they can make. Yeah, I, mean I see so many, the word penalty scares people, and I went to Catholic school, so it scares me too, because uh, man, getting hit with a ruler on the hand or something, you know. But but here's the way I look at it: What if I were to give you a loan, and it's a ten percent loan, but you only have to pay ten percent the first year for the rest of your life? It's a zero percent loan. How many people are going to take that loan? Almost everyone, right? Because it, over ten years, that's one percent a year. But because the word penalty is associated with it. They don't take it. The real penalty is that money's locked away from opportunity. The real penalty is there's zero cash flow with it. The real penalty is they don't like paying taxes today. And when they get to so-called retirement, they still don't like paying taxes and they still don't spend it. So the real penalty on those plans is usually 100%. They never spend a dollar from it. And so they didn't get any of the benefit. And if they tell me something like, well, I just want to leave it behind in my heirs. I'm like, well, guess what? Retirement plan's the worst thing to leave behind your heirs. Because you're going to buy life insurance, for crying out loud. Life insurance is tax-free. And it's going to be cheaper than a dollar for dollar you put into your plan. It's taxable when it's inside of these plans. You pass it to a spouse tax-free, but when you want to give it to someone other than a spouse, there's taxes unless you do what's called a stretch IRA, which stretches it out for no one to ever get it. So it's, it's absurd because it's a plan that's easy to get into, hard to get out of. And they're really good with the psychological triggers to get people to keep their money in there. Let's think about why do these plans exist? We break down why IRAs, 401ks, simple SEPs, KEOGs, four, you know, whatever. We don't 457s, like all these 403Bs, all those damn plans are all the same thing for the most part with different contribution levels. So this is why they exist. Pensions used to exist. And pensions put a lot of onerous on a company. And most of those companies projected the stock market would do a lot better than it did. So when it didn't do well, they went bankrupt. They didn't have the money for the pension. So they wanted to shift that on to the individuals that worked for them so they didn't have to be responsible anymore. And so what's genius is the financial institutions, they may not be the one that get the credit for creating it, but they're the ones that benefit the most. Because think about it, if you're a bank or a financial institution, what do you want from people? Their money. How often? As often as possible, every day. How long you want to hold on to the money for? As long as possible so I can keep lending more and more of it out. And if they want to withdraw, how much you want to give them back? As little as possible. All right, cool. So now we know exactly what the agenda is of the institution. And there's about no better plan than a retirement plan to facilitate that agenda. <laughs> Automatic payments going in every month pre-tax so they get a they get a fee off your money and the government's money penalties if you get out early so you're required to stay longer taxes when you finally take it out unless it's a Roth and so now you don't want to take it out because you don't want to pay tax so guess who wins in those plans the institutions they're making money on your money not their money they're making money on the government's money they're getting fees whether you make money or not and you have a bunch of obstacles to actually get your money out so they love them it feeds them not you it feeds them 
So that's my issue with them. And, and, you know, I think that the hardest thing for people to understand is opportunity cost, because it's not just what you're earning in there. It's what you're not earning by having your money locked up. Cause we're all going to have, I mean, even if you're just living under a rock, you're going to have a dozen investment opportunities that are actually really good during your lifetime. Uh, other people like I'm in a level of a profile where I'm going to probably get more than that. But the reality is, if all your money is illiquid and tied up, what good does it do? You're not going to be able to do anything about it. So I have no problem with the penalty because I look, I used to fund the 401k back in the day, worked for a financial institution. They matched me 3%. I put it in there. And then one day I'm doing this analysis and I'm like, I, I, I thought these plans were amazing because I'm like, you have to earn so much money outside of these plans to even compete. And for whatever reason, this epiphany hit me. And I think it was this guy, Todd Langford, that taught it to me, which was, hey, when you put money in that plan, you're not really saving tax. And I was like, okay, that doesn't make sense because if I put $10,000 in the plan, I pay $4,000 less in tax this year. And he goes, right, but the money, the tax savings isn't in your pocket. It's not in your bank account. The tax savings is stuck in the plan. So you paid $10,000. The reason you didn't pay tax on it it says you didn't take constructive receipt of the money. You said, it's not my money, it's the plan's money for my benefit sometime in the future. He says, but if you want to take that money out tomorrow, you actually have a 10% disadvantage, not a 40% advantage because you'll pay the 40% tax and you'll pay a 10% penalty. So now you're at half the money you thought that you had. And I was like, okay, so the tax savings isn't in your pocket, it's stuck inside of the plan. It's not real tax savings, it's tax deferral. If that tax deferral, there's limited cash flow, high reliance on the stock market, a myriad of fees, and you know, we could just go on and on and on because here's my other problem. I think the government's likely to raise the tax brackets in the future. There's $23 trillion, maybe more now, of debt here in the United States alone. How the hell do they pay for debt if you're the government? Through tax. So we're gonna have to see some taxes. I don't wanna be a sitting duck deferring taxes in the future that's unknown and uncertain because right now we're pretty historically low on taxes and I think they're likely to go up and I plan on making more money in the future and anyone who doesn't plan on having more money in the future is going to get their ass kicked by inflation. Inflation is going to confiscate your purchasing power. It's going to take away from what you could buy and so I think that these plans have been overhyped, overpromoted, and they've underperformed unfortunately and so I'm not 100% against them. I just think that you better get efficient first Build up plenty of liquidity, invest in yourself, discover your investor DNA, know your intelligence when it comes to your investing, say no to a lot more things than you say yes to, and focus on cash flow. When you've got enough cash flow that it covers your basic expenses, if you want to fund these plans as a supplement to what you're doing, that's a different story than using it as your primary vehicle. I think that that's brilliant, man. And, and another thing you said that triggered a, a whole other discussion is net worth versus cash flow. A lot of people are comfortable in the equity in their places, but then they're living paycheck to paycheck and they think that they're okay. And I hear you talk a lot about, about that and you just start saying it again, the importance of cash flow over net worth and what that can actually do for you now. What's some advice you can give to people? Because I'm very surprised how many people I talk to that tell me they're in the real estate game and then they come talk to me and I ask them about getting into investment and it's like, well, I don't really have any money. I just own all these properties and now my credit shot or I can't show income so I can't even pull the money out of there anyway. It's like, well, what good did that even do you? So um, talk a little bit about the importance of that and the difference in that, like you do in some of your books. Yeah, like, so on a, 
on my YouTube channel, which is just Garrett Gunderson, if you go to YouTube, or you can put it in an internet browser, Garrett.live, I have this, this video. It's like the third most popular video and the most hated video I've ever done. And it says in the thumbnail, whole mortgage lie, right? And I don't know what else the main title is, but people that have paid off their mortgage get so pissed off at this video and they, they didn't even watch it. But my whole notion is, if you have a home, like it's not gonna create cash flow for you unless you somehow are Airbnb, you know, rooms in it or, you know, renting out a basement or something like that. For the most part, it's a lifestyle choice. It's a lifestyle choice. And I, the home I'm sitting in right now, you know, my wife wanted it. And I, I want my wife, so we have this home. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not, I'm not delusional to think this is an asset of ours. I just think of it as a luxury of ours. Um, and as a matter of fact, when we went to live in Italy for a few months, I said, hey, we should rent out our house. And you know what she told me? She goes, I don't want people doing weird shit in our home when we're not there. I'm like, what are you talking about? You don't want people doing weird? I'm like, your cousin watches our dog and always wants to know exactly when we're home. What do you think? He wants to know exactly what we're going to catch him doing the dishes or something. He's going to do some weird shit in there when we're not there. Like, so, but whatever, we're not renting out. So it's not providing cash flow. And so I believe in one of two things with a home, with a primary residence. You pay it off in full or you have it fully leveraged. Anything in between doesn't make sense to me. Because if you're paying extra to your mortgage, if it's not interest only, you're tying money up in equity gel. It's paying down the loan, but it's not lowering your payment. It's just shortening the term. And most people don't stay in their home and pay it off. They refinance, they move. There's a number of things that can happen. And the more money you have in equity in your residence, the more risk you face. Because if you ever can't make that payment, they're never gonna give you a loan to get the cash back out. And they wanna take the thing from you because they can turn around and sell it and make a profit. Where if you have no equity, they have no incentive to take it from you. They're gonna work with you much longer. They're gonna to tolerate a lot more BS. And so I think that you know this whole notion of pay extra, go aggressive on that. Once you paid off your debt, you're gonna feel so much better. I'm like, first off, we gotta learn what debt is. Debt is the difference between what you owe and what it's worth. And when you owe more than what something's worth, that is debt. When you have something that's worth more than you owe, that's equity. So if my home is worth $2 million and I owe a million dollars on it, I have a million of equity, not a million of debt. Yet 99% of the population is like, oh, you're a million in debt on that home. Really? A million in debt? If I sell it tomorrow, I pocket a million dollars or whatever after, you know, taxes and, you know, all that kind of stuff, mortgage fees or whatever it might, or I mean, uh, uh, real estate fees. But the bottom line is I'm in equity. So people are avoiding the wrong things. They're avoiding equity because they're scared of having a loan. Now, if you're scared of having a loan, that's fine. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. But if you're scared of having a loan, don't give the bank extra money to try to get rid of it. Keep that money in your control. That way, if you have a cash flow crunch or an opportunity comes, you can capitalize on opportunity, use the cash flow, and pay the damn thing off. It's just, a, it's just the logical way to think versus the emotional way to think. And people prey on emotions, and institutions love that. Banks love to get that extra payment. Think about it. Banks will charge you less if you shorten your loan from a 30 to a 15-year loan. They're like, great, we'll charge you 4.5% instead of 5 Why? Are they nice people? No, because they get faster cash flow. Because they can sell that loan for more on the secondary market because they're selling the stream of income and then their cash flow business. They're selling accumulation to everyone else, which is wait for 30 years while they build cash flow themselves. They're not funding a retirement plan when you make a deposit in an institution. No, they're 
they're lending that out for more than they're paying you. They're an intermediary. They're giving you a damn toaster in the old days or a gun if you're in the Midwest or whatever the hell else they give you with an open account to try and entice you. But the bottom line is, like, this is an emotional place for people. Now, for something to be an asset for me, it's got to create cash flow. Like, it's got to it's got to create cash flow. So I like to fund assets. I like to fund my businesses. Ripwater, Wealth Labs, Wealth Factory. That's what I'm going to grow. I can grow that a lot faster than I can grow anything else. I can have more influence on those things than I can have anything else. I can have more enjoyment with those than I can have with other things. So that's what I do. I know other people that crush it with real estate. But if you're going to do real estate, you treat it like a business. You treat it like a hobby. If you do, you think you're just, oh, I heard it's great cash flow. And you go buy something, someone's going to annihilate you because they know what's going on. So you better know what's going on. But, but to me, cash flow is the key. And, you know, cars, homes, they're not really assets. They're luxuries. Once you know the difference, you get that, yeah, it's okay to have them. But, you know, not if it's preventing you from doing anything productive. I love that, man. It's so backwards. People are so quick to buy the depreciating assets that aren't going to make them any money. And then they're so scared to invest in the things that will actually help them. And even stuff like that, a guy I was just talking to, he sold the business. He had like 400 grand. And what he was going to do was use it to pay down the principal on his, his primary residence. And I had to explain to him how stupid that was because I go, look, I have a portfolio right now of 24 doors you can buy. I can get you a loan at 80% of the value. You, even with 6% right now, you're still making $54,000 a year. You can still pay that down. But after you pay down your HELOC, you feel better about it. But then what? If you need money, you're just going to have to re-leverage that house. And what if you can't even do that because now you don't have a job or the market turns or the equity goes away? And it's just so backwards is you can do something a little bit different and have those things come in. And I just love how you think of things different. And one of the things you, you had me really laughing in Park City because me and my business partner are always talking about how people just give you answers. It, it drives me nuts when somebody, I ask them a question and they don't know the answer, but instead of going, you know what, let me go ask somebody because I'm not 100% sure, they just answer it and I know it's wrong, but they right. confidently give you that answer and they do it all the time. And you were saying a lot of stuff like people will come up to you and go, hey man, that stuff you were saying, yeah, I do that. And you were like, no, you don't, no, you don't. And then like, even with the, uh, with, with the write-offs and stuff, when people were like, oh, Gary, you, you can't write that off. And you went back and you went, well, why not? So there's nobody ever in the history of the world ever written that off before. Well, there's this person. Okay, so do what that person did. So that kind of stuff, I've just, since I learned not to just trust people that they're giving the right answer, that they're professional, or that they even freaking listen to what I ask them, I always ask again a second or a third time or go to somebody else for the answer. And since I've done that, I've gotten so much more done. And I almost always get whatever I was looking to accomplish. And I just had to go to somebody else. Um, you had a bunch of funny stories like that. I, I, I'm sure it drives you nuts. But what do you, what do you think as far as that? Just listen to those kind of answers. And, and how did you develop that to just start to question things and just not take that at face value? Man, after I got my butt kicked on that first, you know, putting people in mutual funds and watching the market go down, that changed everything for me. That's why I was like, I'm gonna ask a lot of questions. And I had this distinction where I'm like, cool, there's the peace of mind that people have. There's the emotional mind. And I, I recognize the higher the emotion, the lower the financial IQ a lot of times. And so I was like, I at least wanna know the economics behind everything. And I wanna look at it and I wanna understand the concept behind it. And then the only way I'm gonna be able to do that is I gotta give up commissions. I gotta give up products. 
because it's impossible for someone to see the truth if they're paid on something and then they're really excited about getting paid on that. So, you know, it's like, cool, if I sold, if I sold 401ks for a living, guess what? I'd find ways to justify the, the garbage of there by only looking at the benefits. So I had to get rid of the dog in the fight. I had to basically be like, I have to make money by selling books, creating content, doing coaching, like not by product transactions. And that was tough because I made a lot of money doing life insurance. Now, I was able to figure out a way where I could license content to insurance people that I like have similar values with so that I could still get some benefit, but it wasn't going to be me sitting down with someone and writing a policy because guess what was going to happen? I was going to give them so much information on that, but there's other things that are so critical for them to know. So I had to give up all the comforts and the easiness to create something that allowed me to have an incubator to say, let's look at this from a mathematical, scientific, economic standpoint. And then let's also look at it from a personal psychology standpoint and see how all that works together. I get a lot of questions from people on uh, wanting to pick my brain, wanting to ask me about what I do, how do I do it, all kinds of things across the spectrum. One of the things I try and answer back with is there's a few different ways that we can work together. People can either um, participate by being a buyer, being a seller, or being a partner, and that's really the best way to learn. So if people have questions that have reached out to me, the best thing to do is jump on www.nicknicknick.com, and you can schedule a consultation if you're looking to sell properties, buy part properties, partner on some deals, or just get a general consultation to see where we can even fit in and where we can do business together on any level. There's options for that to set some stuff up. So please visit www.nicknicknick.com to buy, to sell, or to partner on real estate deals or opportunities. That is the place to go. That is the best way to start making money and learning the process. That's awesome, man. I, I, I 100% back all those, those things up. Uh, I do need you to break a, uh, a, a, an argument we were having, though. You mentioned in Park City on the side that you do stand-up comedy and somebody thought you were joking and then the other half was like, no, I think that's something you actually do. Oh, yeah, man. I do stand-up comedy. So, um, you know, I could give you a link with, a, with a, one of my 10, 15-minute sets. Uh, there's times I'll be speaking somewhere. And they'll have me do stand-up the night before my speech. So, like, <laughs> I'll do, like, I did this thing in San Diego, 30 minutes of comedy the, the night before. Then I did a hour speech the next day. So, actually, I'm, I'm in the middle of pitching a show to ABC and Fox um, that would take and integrate all these money concepts with a lot of humor involved with it. So, um, now I can kind of combine the two. But, yeah, man, I'm, I, uh, I'm writing a, a TED Talk right now. I'm adding a little bit of comedy into it here and there. That's awesome, man. I'm a huge uh, stand-up comedy fan. I, I go to live comedy as much as I possibly can. My Who's some uh, of your favorites, man? The what? Who's some of your favorites? Uh, I'm really big on, like, the Joe Rogan, Tom Segura, Burt Kreischer. I've been listening to a lot of Chris D'Elia, uh, Jim Norton. Dave Chappelle, obviously, is really funny. Uh, Dub Davidoff has been a, a favorite of mine. Bill Burr. Um, I saw, I used to see Jessica Kearson a lot in the city and she was hysterical and she's getting a bigger name now with a lot of things she's doing. But that, that's some of my top. Two of those. I've seen all but two of those people live, so. Mark Norman, Mark Norman's really funny now. I like it how uh, just yeah. cynical he is. Yeah, man, what, what about I've you? I've seen him as a comedy seller before. I love the comedy. I have never had a bad time. We just went there, Um, I, I, I got my black belt on like seven two. So we all went to the comedy seller to celebrate the next day. And um, Colin Quinn was headlining with David Tell, and Ray Romano showed up 
just randomly to work out his new Netflix hour. And it, it was so funny, dude. But every time I've been to the comedy cell, like Damon Wayne shows up, Jerry, somebody shows up just to work out their stuff, and it's hysterical. Like, yeah, my first I love time on the Comedy Cellar is December of 2001. I'm in New York, like, doing all this research. It was part of my, my flying somewhere every month. And uh, I finish, like, all my meetings for the whole day, and I go back to the hotel. I'm like, it's New York. I'm lame. I need to do something. I can't just go to bed. So I go to the concierge, I'm like, hey, uh, it's a city, I'm sure there's good comedy, anything you recommend? And funny enough, he goes, hey, yeah, I was at Comedy Cellar last night and Colin Quinn showed up. So this was way back in 2001. And I was like, ah, cool, where's the Comedy Cellar? So he tells me about it in Greenwich Village over there on McDougal Street. And so I go and I'm just sitting there and a couple good comedians and all of a sudden they go, hey, we have a surprise for you. It's Chris Rock. And so Chris Rock oh, came in. And he did a long, long set because he was working out some final material. So it was my first time to the Comedy Cellar. Got to see this long set from Chris Rock. And then it's funny because Chris Rock finishes and it was Sherrod Small, I think, was the one I'm seeing. And he goes, oh, you won't even believe it. The nutty professor himself just showed up, Eddie Murphy. And he was just messing with us. Just <laughs> messing with us. He goes, you guys are so greedy. You saw Chris Rock for two drink minimum. Get, a, get over it, you know? So, yeah, there was uh, the first few times I used to go there, Robert Kelly used to be the MC, and he was funnier than all the comedians in there, man. Those, those guys are just so quick. I, I always have a good time there. I was just there a few months ago, and we saw Ari Schaefer was the best of the night. Nice, nice. Ari crushed it, yeah. Yeah, he, he grew on me. I've been listening to him a lot on our Rogan's podcast and that stuff. I don't know he's been doing stuff out there, but, yeah, it's good stuff, man. I think that's awesome. And, I mean, it makes all the difference in the world. I mean, I'm sure personality has things to do with it, but – Listening to you talk about stuff like that and the, the I, I don't, because no, nobody really knew you were coming out there. All of a sudden, you just got up and started winging it and you came off so dry at first. And then as you started going and you started like throwing those little jokes and zingers and stuff in there, it was like, I like this. And it really makes you focus. It really makes you pay more attention. I think that that's a, a huge thing that that industry needs. So I think your show would be awesome, man. And I mean, for somebody like me, it made all the difference in the world to make me want to listen to more of the stuff that you're saying because it was keeping me entertained and I mean, it's just, it's just different, man. It doesn't have to be that stuffy suit and tie conversation. I was talking to my wife today about what I want to name the show, and uh, she did, she wasn't a fan. I want to call it The Money Shot. And she just <laughs> doesn't think that that's appropriate. And I was like, no, I mean, I, it'd be awesome because I could just, like, hammer all this crappy advice out there. And, you know, obviously there's the uh, double meaning and everything. So. Yeah. Oh, I think that's perfect. She's, they, you think they're going to shoot it down? No, I guess the networks might not love that, but... I think, I, I think it'll be a segment I'll call that, but I, I don't think I can get the show called that, but I think I can get a segment called that. <laughs> well, that's awesome, man. I'll check that out for sure. So talking about more of the stuff you did, I love your mission statement. I don't want to mess it up, but um, they were talking about how you wanted to create a millionaire. Well, you, you can say it probably better than I can. One million entrepreneurs to economic independence. I want one million people to have enough cash flow coming in from assets to cover their expenses. Because then they're liberated, then they can actually be much better value creators. And, uh, you know, they're the ones that employ so many people. So small business employs a lot more people than big business. So I don't really care much about big business. I'm all about the small business owner and helping them out. Awesome, man. So talking about some of the things you did, I know you guys do a lot of different things. You have Wealth Factory, um, you have YouTube channel. Um, there's a whole bunch of things. I know you do coaching and I know there's things you do. You have a whole tax team, I believe, for what some of the stuff you were talking about. So. Yeah. Um, talk about, so somebody who's looking, maybe they have just some money to start out, they have some things they want to reinvest, or they just have 
a shitty CPA or something like that. What are some of the things you and your company are offering to help people? Well, if they go to wealthfactory.com forward slash tax, they can get some good questions and how to develop a team. But if they go to wealthfactory.com forward slash mega kit, they can get killing sacred cows or the rock fellers do. So two of my books and download and they get a cash flow guide, seven key things entrepreneurs can do to improve cash flow. I think there's a couple other bonuses. It's kind of ridiculous how much we're giving away on that. But I always kind of feel like if someone invested all the way till the end of a podcast, uh, they've invested a little bit of time in me. I'd like to invest some back in them. So wealthfactory.com forward slash mega kit is where they can get all those resources. And so um, either one of those two things will probably answer everything that you kind of brought up just now. Okay, awesome. And I know you said you have a YouTube channel. What type of stuff are you doing on there? So YouTube's uh, a little bit more for the masses. There are a few videos that go into more of the deep, you know, kind of content that I might cover in some of the giveaways. But um, I'm doing five videos a week. Uh, you know, one of them is called Ask the Money Nerds. People can go to askthemoneynerds.com. They ask questions and I answer them. Uh, Amanda Stolben, my chief of staff, just interviews me and I answer the questions. So those are gaining some popularity on that show. I do a Money Matters show once a week where we just take one topic and we spend 10 to 20 minutes on that one topic. It's very practical, something they can uh, implement. Then I do a, a green screen rant every week where I'll take one topic and I'll do 10 to 20 minutes, just me, like going and breaking it down. Here's five specific things you could do. Here's seven specific things you could do. Here's the eight things that have totally destroyed why people aren't getting ahead. That, so it's like, you know, it's something I sit down and I write and I, and I, and I film. It's, it's a pretty intentional, intense type of thing. And then uh, I've got another segment called Sacrifice Shrug where we go through and we get people out of the reductionist miser mindset, right? And try to get them to the point where they're thinking in a creative, productive expansion type of mindset. And we get a little bit deep philosophically there. I have some things coming out which are me doing live sessions with people where I'm actually coaching people through their situations and we're highlighting that. Um, I've done some sessions on legacy with my wife. So it's, it's got, you know, you can go and there's categories on that YouTube where you can look at legacy, you can look at tax, you can look at cash flow, and you can kind of pick from those videos. And at the end of every video, we suggest other videos we've done that are related to kind of help people out. But just started this in April of 2019. And my goal was to have 10,000 subscribers by the end of the year. We hit 20,000. And uh, now my goal is to get to 100,000 by the end of this year. Uh, maybe we'll be at 200. That'd be great. And then a million the year after. And then I want to be the number one financial channel in the world on YouTube. So I want to be uh, providing just a great platform for me to record from my, from my home and reach a lot of people, you know, and really give in a way that they're not they're not writing me a check. I'm not, I'm not very heavily on the promotion. I think I've promoted a book or two once or twice. I mean, people get angry when you try to make money. Jesus, you think they're like, you know, communists out there or what? I don't know. So they're not, I don't get too bent out about that, but I'm, it's really just a lot of value add on. It really is, man. I'll tell you those, for the price of those books, the amount of information in there is incredible. I was like looking at it today, all the clips that I've saved and the remarks that go back to, and it's even cool on Audible, the way that every time you hear something, that you want to remember you can save it and go back and i just have a whole probably days of stuff right now that i saved for you so that was worth every penny i appreciated all of it um but before i let you go a couple of last things i wanted to touch on is one with all the fear about where we are in the market and different people are investing in different things and stocks and real estate and all these things right now 
What are your thoughts on your favorite things to invest in right now and some things that you can do or your predictions on where things are going to go in 2020 with, with just the markets in general? I think we're going to be able to get, like, I think that those people that are like full-time real estate investors, there's still plenty of deals out there. They're just harder to come by. There's just, it's a lot more competitive right now. We've had a big run up, but on the lower tier of real estate, it's going to get even more popular when the correction happens because people are going to need a place to live. And when they're out in the cold or they can't, you know, their credit sucks or the banks stop lending, they're going to have to have a place to live. So we even saw that in 2008, 2009, 2010, lower tier rental real estate crushed because people had to have a place to live. Um, it was only the really high luxury homes that got hammered first and they got hammered really hard during that time. And then people that were just trying to sell a, you know, middle America home that was a, a nice home, they had a hard time. But when we're talking about fourplex and under that, you know, people could rent for a reasonable price, I, I feel like that's still going to be in quite a bit of favor. I think if you could hold off, I think you're going to be able to get a 10, 20, 30% discount on businesses. And right now the public businesses are so expensive and so overvalued. The price to earnings ratios, the multiples on those are beyond belief and astronomical, but private businesses are still a bargain. So there's a book out there, my buddy Walker Dybell wrote called Buy Them Bill that I endorse. He talks about business acquisition where you still buy businesses for under three times multiple. Well, like the public businesses, we're talking 29 times multiple. So like it's, it's really for those people that want to do uh, acquisition entrepreneurship, I think there's going to be a massive opportunity coming soon because of the number of baby boomers that are aging and also the markets I think are going to go down and you're going to see businesses suffer with the market going down that are actually sustainable businesses that, just, and that are going to bounce back pretty well. I think the stock market just avoided. I just think the stock market is so overvalued right now. I mean, maybe that you could go pick individual stocks because you research and you study and that's an industry that you know and you have certain formulas for it, fine. Mutual funds are going to get their asses kicked. I would, I would bond funds are going to be worse, but uh, I think that equity funds that are highly aggressive are going to get uh, smacked pretty hard. I think that that's genius, man. I never thought about that with the businesses, but I 100% I'm on the same page with the real estate. That's what I tell everybody. It's if you have the liquidity to go buy some stuff, it's about to be a big sale. That's when you got to buy the stuff. And you know, those, those, some of those big high price ticket markets are already coming down a little bit. There's a market starting to grow. So I think it's a really smart play. Um, lastly, 60 second commercial for, for Garrett, for you, for something you want to put out there. If I was going to make a little segment to pop out to throw on some social media, what would it be? All right, go to freewwrd.com. And if you want a physical copy or you want the audible version of what would the Rockefellers do, you got to get it there. We don't have what would the Rockefellers do on audible. It's only something that we did on our own. And I have plenty of extra commentary on it. You can get the download for free, but if you want a physical copy, you can pick it up. And here's what it's talking about. Where can you store your cash until the economy changes? Where can you get liquidity without locking it up in retirement plans? Where can you make sure when the market goes down, your money still grows during that time? We're going to cut out the bank as the middleman. And where can you start creating exit strategies that could be tax-free and efficient because of something I call buying net worth rather than building it? I believe you buy net worth, you build cash flow. That book gives you one specific strategy to do that. Free WWRD is in whatwithrockfellowsdo.com. There's a little commercial. Oh, awesome. I love it, man. Any final thoughts on where people can find you? I know you gave your websites and YouTube channel, uh, Facebook, Instagram, any of that kind of stuff. 
So I, you know, like I'm active as hell on uh, on uh, YouTube. I'll respond. If you get a response on Instagram, it's not me. It's my <laughs> team. If you get a response on Facebook, it's not me. It's my team. Instagram, cool. I just get spammed to death. So I don't even know if I've ever looked at any of the folders since day one. But I'll tell you what. Even people that call me a douchebag, I'll probably respond to on YouTube. I just have fun with it. And I don't take myself so seriously that I care about the, the negative comments. And I enjoy the positive comments here and there, but you know, it doesn't inflate my ego much. It's just nice to hear that I'm doing something that helps people out. Nice, man. Well, I think you are 100%. I enjoy everything you teach. I get a lot of value from it. Um, can we also see, where can we see you do comedy if we want to pop up and see you do a set? I was just uh, I was just talking to Barry Katz, who actually managed Dave Chappelle for eight years, uh, since you brought up Dave's name. Um, and I got offered to do the comedy store, and so we're strategizing when I'm going to do that. I'm coming out to New York for my pitch for Fox and ABC, so I don't know if he's going to try to get me on anything when I'm out there. I don't know if I'm going to have the bandwidth for it, because I'm, I'm actually going to Lambertville right after to work on my one-man show, and then I go do a TEDx talk. So... I don't have any comedy plan for January right now, uh, simply because I just have too much on the plate uh, as, as I'm speaking. So, um, yeah. and the last time I got invited, I was out of the country. So, uh, right after Christmas. So, yeah, man, I gotta get, I gotta get it, I gotta get back on the schedule doing it. I, I'm probably rusty. I haven't done anything since November. Fair enough. I just went to the uh, comedy store a couple of weeks ago, actually, to go see. Um, I should have mentioned him of my favorites. Nick Swartzen might be my favorite stand-up in person. Every he's time coming to, he's coming to Salt Lake, man. He's oh, on the way to Salt Lake, yeah. I love him, man. I've been seeing him for years. Him and Brian Callum with the Comedy Store. Joey Diaz was supposed to be there, but didn't show up. But Comedy Store is another one, man. I, every time I go to California, now I'm trying to go out there. So hopefully you get some sets in there for sure, man. But um, I, I, tell you that I, got, I told you I got invited to do the Comedy Store. Is that why you bring it up? The comedy yeah, store? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you said. That's yeah. cool. So, but see, I got too much shit on my mind. Don't even remember. <laughs> yeah, you reminded me of when you said it. I was like, man, I didn't give Brian Callen and Nick Swartzen any type of credits there. And my, uh, I, like, my I like Brian Callen a lot too, man. He, he's a good oh, yeah. actor too. My my jujitsu coach is uh, Matt Serra, and he does a podcast with Jim Norton, and then he does a show on uh, on YouTube with Dana Whitehall looking for a fight, and they make him do challenges. And one of the challenges they had was they had them all go to the comedy cellar, I'm sorry, the comedy store, and they, they made them do like a, a live comedy set in front of everybody, and Brian Callen and Nick Swartzum helped them do it. It's on YouTube, it's really funny though, but it's awesome, man. I, I think it's great, man. So, uh, but this is really fun for me, man. I appreciate it. I was very uh, excited to do this. I was also very intimidated. You're a very smart guy, you obviously know your stuff, man. I really appreciate that you gave me the time to do it. I know you didn't have to, but it was really, meant a lot to me. It was really awesome for me. I get a lot out of your books. I'm going to subscribe to your YouTube. Anything I can ever do for you, please don't hesitate. I'd be happy to help you anyway. I Thank you so much, man. man. I really enjoyed it. Thank you Thank so much. You, and, uh, from one comedy fan to another, you know? Look forward <laughs> to seeing it, man. I'll keep my eye out for you. Good luck in the future. All right. Take care, man. If I need Thank a bodyguard, I got, I got your black belt. I got your black belt because of me, right? There you go, man. Anytime. All right. Later. Have a good day, Gary. Thank you. If you guys are getting anything from the podcast and some of the great knowledge and tips that the guests are sharing, please take a minute and leave a review on iTunes or any of your platforms with some stars and some comments, helping spread the promotion and spread some visibility for the podcast, for the guests, and for the knowledge so we can continue to do this. It'll only take a minute. I appreciate it if you guys could take the time. It would go a very, very long way. 
Again, leave a review on iTunes, start to share, start to spread the word. I really would appreciate it if you're getting anything out of this. Thank you.